Good afternoon and welcome to Keys to Creating a Robust Enterprise-Wide Cybersecurity Culture, a health system CIO Media Inc. production sponsored by Assimiling and produced in partnership with HHS 405D. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra. I'm the editor-in-chief of Health System CIO, and I will be your moderator today. We're looking forward to your participation. You can send in your questions or comments in the Q&A box, and we'll take those later in the program. Just so you see how we're going to spend our time today, uh, first we're going to have our panel discussion featuring Eric Decker, AVP and CISO with Intermountain Healthcare, Julian Mahai. CISO at, at Penn Medicine and University of Pennsylvania Health System, and Shankar Somasundaram, founder and CEO with Assimile. And then we will have our audience Q&A. So let's jump right in. Um, Eric, can you give us an overview of your organization and your role? You bet. So thanks, Anthony, and welcome, everybody. Uh, Intermountain is an integrated delivery network that is uh, headquartered in Salt Lake City in Utah, we have hospitals in three surrounding states, and um, in three days, we'll have six surrounding states with uh, with the close of an upcoming merger with uh, the Sisters of uh, Charity in Leavenworth, or, or SEL Health. Uh, so we, we surround um, Utah, Nevada, Idaho, and soon Colorado, Kansas, and Montana, uh, with, as well as having some clinics and, and others in um in uh, Arizona, Wyoming, and, and so forth. Uh, so being an integrated delivery network, we also have a health plan. So Select Health is the, is the plan side with a, a million members, uh, 33 total hospitals as of April 1st, uh, 60,000 caregivers or employees, and you know, uh, generally a, a large system in the mountain states. Very good, Eric, thank you. Julian? Oh, hello, Anthony. Um, my name is uh, Julian Mihai. I'm the CISO at uh, Penn Medicine. Uh, Penn Medicine is comprised of uh, a health system associated with University of Pennsylvania. And uh, we have uh, five uh, large hospitals in the uh, Philadelphia area and uh, uh, one in Princeton in New Jersey and uh, um, over 100 ambulatory sites of uh, different sizes. Um, as well as the uh, medical school, uh, the Paramount School of Medicine, that's involved in both uh, education and uh, research. Very good, Julian. Thank you. Shankar? Yeah. Hi, everyone. Uh, thank you for having me here. I'm Shankar, co-CEO and founder of Assimile. Uh, the quick context for Assimile is a healthcare focus, um, you know, inventory, cybersecurity, and operational management solution for medical and IoT devices. We are working with, uh, you know, small, medium, large health systems, both across the country in U.S. as well as internationally. Um, and we started around five years ago and we have uh, worked and continue to grow uh, with our customers and partners. Um, I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Let's jump right in. Uh, Eric, we're going to start with you. Define what we mean by a cybersecurity culture. How would you describe a good one and a bad one? And what do they consist of? Yeah, so I think, uh, you know, when we think of culture, we, you know, we think of the behavioral norms that we have inside of our organizations uh, or even outside of our organizations. So what are those non-dictated, non-policy, you know, related um, behaviors and habits that the, the organization has? 
you know, so from a cyber uh, a cybersecurity culture and sort of a definition around that is uh, things that I would call a, uh, the difference between awareness and being knowledgeable of the cyber issues, uh, the the people's place, uh, your employees' place inside the organization as it relates to cyber, and understanding what their roles and responsibilities are there. Um, you know, and I think trying to not trying to draw lines on what's good and bad. Uh, maybe what I'll say is, you know, elements that are of an effective and leaned in culture are going to be, you know, those that your employees are engaging with your cybersecurity team uh, on a, on an on-demand basis. You know, they're, they're engaging with you versus the other way around where you're engaging with them. You know, those are, that's a good sign. Um, I would say as well, you know, there's things that we do, you know, where we do things like phishing simulations and so forth. And uh, my personal belief is, you know, those types of simulations are there to educate. And if you can even get to gamification of them, where you make it more of a, uh, a rewarding experience than a punitive experience, you can get folks that are more leaned into the issues at hand and you can, you know, leverage them as uh, your human sensors, you know, the, the old adage at, in, in New York City in the subway system, if you see something, say something, you know, that's the same kind of thing that we want in, in a cyber aware organization is our caregivers, our employees uh, engaging with us when they see things that are, are, have gone awry. And that's because, you know, we all know cybersecurity is not just tech. It's not just processes. You know, there's, there's a huge people element to this and that people element is our culture. Um. Okay, can you give me any examples of employees engaging with the IS team? What sure. are some how, what are some ways that that manifests itself? Yeah, I mean, uh, very tactically, uh, one of those ways could be if you have fish buttons in emails and people get strange email messages that they're not sure is this legit or not legit, rather than deleting it, they're clicking that button and sending it on to the cyber team to evaluate. There's a lot of times that we you get messages these days that might not even be like a fish, but could be a reconnaissance. It could be an individual testing our email accounts active, or they're testing and getting ready to launch into a business email compromise type of social engineering attack. And, uh, you know, cyber teams don't necessarily know what is valid and not valid for every single message that flows in, in and out of the organization, but our people do. And so when they're engaged, they'll click that button and then send it on to you. There's ways you can even quantify that, you know. So if you're looking at when you do your phishing simulations, hopefully, you know, you're doing that on a periodic basis. I, I like monthly. Um, one of the metrics that's good to capture are how what percentage of your organization has actually caught the fish, and not only caught the fish, but sent it back. You know, is that 10%, 20%, 30%? That's a way of getting to a measurement of sort of engagement and awareness of one of those most critical areas that we want people to ask. Um, other ways that people can engage, I mean, that's just the fish, you know, kind of context. I mean, we buy technology all the time in healthcare. Uh, you know, there are leaders that are involved in the acquisition of new technologies, new service contracts, products, and so forth. Uh, getting engaged in those upfront so that you can design security in right out of the gate. You can evaluate those vendors right out of the gate. That's also a measurement of, um, you know, is that is is the culture aware? Is the culture engaged? Is the culture leaned in? Versus catching it constantly on the back end, on the flip side, and and folks sort of thinking about you as an afterthought. That that's another way. Right. So you 
you probably have policies where those have to hit security purchases have to come to security, but you're saying those probably aren't always followed. And the more they are followed is a sign of a culture leaning in Mm -hmm. the more, um, I guess somewhere down downstream that that gets caught and has to be remediated, not so much leaning in there. Yeah. And then ideally you actually have institutional processes that support the whole policy, you know, so that there really is only one gate, you know, to, to bring all of that in and cyber is part of, of that process. You're working with your supply chain and so forth. They've leaned in, they bought on it. Um, you know, that leadership has bought in on the fact that there's a, a separate gate, a second gate that has to go through with your cyber team uh, to make sure they can evaluate the timing associated with those evaluations, you know, there's always a there's always a, a desire to get these things done quickly, and there's always that friction of oh well, cyber gets involved, we're going to slow the whole thing down, you know. So, an engaged culture is one that leans into that. Like, nope, we get it, we understand why. You know, please be as ex- expeditious as possible. Have you know performance measures around it. Demonstrate that back to the business. Um, that's another example. All right, very good, Julian. Uh, what are your thoughts? Well, Anthony, I uh, I would agree with um, um, everything that Eric said. I think to add to that, um, culture to me means uh, two core things. It's uh, beliefs and behaviors. Uh, And I think one thing that's really important, and um, we hear it all the time in different ways, it's it's really about everyone's sense of responsibilities and uh, taking it, uh, taking uh, it seriously. Um, being able to have an interest and stay educated, certainly with the materials and awareness campaign that uh, the cybersecurity team puts forward, um, but also, um, as Eric said, leaning in um, to me, providing just support for any initiatives that sometimes take time. And we know everyone is busy, uh, but allocating uh, a reasonable amount of time towards cybersecurity initiatives is another sign of, uh, uh, of a really good cyber-centric culture. And lastly, I'll add uh, being vigilant um, and reporting. And to me, definitely relate to some of these examples already mentioned. I think to me, I find it really valuable when you see something really not rare, maybe that's not the word, something really suspicious about a system and uh, um, and it made its way, it makes its way to you. Um, so that tells you that folks are engaged, they're keeping a lookout for something that's suspicious that tools might not have caught it. And that's exactly what we want from uh, from our workforce. Yeah, Julian, you mentioned the idea of taking time. And I think that's a really important point. I did an interview yesterday with a CISO and we talked about uh, tabletop exercises he was doing and how he had so many uh, C-suite, C-level individuals and very important people from the organization participating in this exercise that I'm sure took hours. Um, and we talked about how they they dedicated the necessary time to do that and that it's very easy for someone to say, I don't have time for that. You know, I just can't do it, can't do it, can't do it. And if you can't get the necessary people involved for something like that, it's not going to be done right. So uh, I just, uh, any more on that point you made about people devoting time to this? Yeah, I think it comes back to um, um, r- really driving that the, the importance of cybersecurity and connecting, um, if you will, 
why it is important and connecting that at different levels so that when you make those requests at their times, be it executives or be it uh, uh, large groups in your organization, they already understand why it's important. They can relate emotionally to what they do and what they believe in. Um, and then it's, uh, it, it's easy. Uh, yes, it is. But there's one more thought here that once you get that buy, you made the case about how important it is. You get the cooperation. It's really important for the CISO, the security executive, to use that time extremely well to be super organized and very efficient and not have people sitting around waiting around. Because if they feel like you wasted their time and that you didn't handle this properly, you're going to have a tough time getting them to cooperate next time. Does that mm -hmm. make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And that's uh, that's a key uh, part where you not you need to follow through. And uh, again, it depends on the groups you engage. You mentioned executives and uh, um, they are decision makers. So you need to put them in front of uh, some decisions, not, not be bombarded with more information. Um, some other key groups in a health system could be um, nurses, which is the largest group typically in most healthcare organization um, or other clinicians. And in their case, they're busy looking for patients. So if you need something, you just better make it very crisp, very precise, very actionable um, so they can um, help you without, uh, without being taken away too much uh, from their day to day. Yeah, I'll add to that, yeah, Anthony. Um, I, I think something that's very important for the evolution of the CISO role is we've moved beyond the days of being in the back end, you know, being in the back office, protecting the technology, you know, thinking about, uh, you know, we have all these processes, configurations, whatever that happens inside of IT and, you know, doing the work on the tech side to, to protect the organization. If, if, the, if the CISO or the, the security executive has that mindset, then they will, they very likely won't be brought to the table you know, uh, at the at the leadership level, the executive leadership level, because you know those are the nuts and bolts mm -hmm. of of IT. The CISO, you know, the the maturity and the growth of this of this profession has has and is a, a business leader. You know, first and foremost, like that's how we need to think of ourselves. And business leaders are, you know, solutioners. You know, we we solve problems. We are enabling the organization to grow, to you know, meet its mission and to meet its visions. And that has got to be at our forefront. You know, it, it's not a, it's not so much about pounding our fists on the table and saying, you know, we, we need this because as it is, how do we enable, how do we, how do we achieve the same ends, but do it in a secure way? You know, like that's got to be the mindset. And, you know, the other executives will see that if, if you're, if you've leaned in, in that way, you'll get support. If you, you know, fall behind on this and, and lead from a place of no and lead from a place of this is the control that says we're going to do X, Y, and Z and you can't do it any other way. And there's not a good rationale or reason behind that that is defensible in business terms, you're probably not going to have the support. So the, you know, that's really where the profession has grown to. This is what we've asked for. And then this is our obligation now to be those, those executives that actually lead in that way. Very good. And, Shankar, Shankar, I, I want to bring yep. you in here. Um, 
you work with a lot of organizations, so you have that perspective of being in a number of health systems. Um, you want to talk about what you see are some of the characteristics when you feel like there's a good culture, a cybersecurity culture. What are some of the common things that that means to you that you're seeing? Yeah, so I think it's a great point. And I think Eric and Julian have covered a lot of great points. One thing I will definitely add to it is the communication, right? I think when I, I've actually seen different organizations across the country and people sometimes forget that there's a ton of different audiences within the same organization. There's the doctors, there's the nurses, like Julian mentioned. There's also some people who are on the IT side. There are people who are doing some general break-fix kind of work, which is very important to keep the hospital running. And how you message to all these constituents becomes key because each of them understands the problem very differently. And uh, each of them sees the problem very differently. And so, for example, I have, coincidentally, I have a lot of doctors who are friends across U.S. in different hospitals across the country. And when I talk to them, I actually get a sense of the culture because some of my friends, they actually tell me why cybersecurity is important. These are doctors. These are like specialists. Mm -hmm. They're cardiologists. They're neurologists. They are actually like doing the surgeries and things. And then there are some who tell me that the IT organization is a waste of time. The IS organization is wasting my time. And I, I can see the difference because the way they have been communicated, they were said something in a technical jargon. They don't really get it. And they don't understand why they do, should, be, should even be care, cared. Like they should even be worried about. Whereas some have been explained in a way uh, which makes them understand that this is going to impact their work, right? And so I think I've seen the big difference in cultures. And Eric mentioned it, right? The processes, the, the people are a key component. That's finally what it comes to. And in the large organizations, the IT and the IS is really just a small subsegment of the organization. The people who really are driving a cybersecurity as everybody else, and how you message it, how you communicate it, how your people communicate it, and realizing the fact that people don't understand technology, they don't understand maybe the terms we use, you know, easily in our forums, they don't quite get it, they don't understand the importance of it. That's been a very big difference to me. And that creates like this very, uh, you know, from the roots, it creates this uh, movement in those organizations where people get it, they say things, they do things, they are able to communicate more effectively when they see things which are wrong. And I think Eric made a great point. And how easy is it to communicate to the organization that the other big thing, I see a big difference. In, even among the people who understand, I've seen some who said, I understand it, but I try to report it to my CISO or the IT organization. But God, the process is so complicated that it's so much documentation that I'm going to not do it because I'm going to spend one hour documenting this problem and I have five patients I can see in that. And then there are some will say, it's just a click of a button like Eric mentioned, or it's just a simple message I spend, I spend two minutes and someone took care of it. So one day I see a big difference in the awareness across organizations across the country. I see a big difference in the way the message is communicated, in the way people respond back and the way the processes for people to communicate back to the authorities or to the people in charge. And so among, in addition to what Eric and Julian mentioned, I do see these big differences in healthcare organizations across, which I think make up a for either a very strong culture that is sustainable or things start falling apart because it's not going to work out. Yeah, I would like to add as well. I mean, I think one of our jobs as CISOs is to find those areas of friction that actually are not worth it and get rid of it. You know, so which is maybe a little counterintuitive, you know, but our job is you know, we're we're risk managers at the end of the day. And, and we're looking at an understanding of we understand 
the business side and the tech side and the cyber risk, you know, associated to the whole thing. And when we come across a process that, you know, organizations sort of get baked into doing these things for long periods of time, and you might ask the question, well, why are we doing this? And the answer is, well, history. Okay. Is that, is that a real answer, you know, or, or are we just, are we nervous, you know, because of a risk appetite perspective to make a change, you know, something could go wrong. Well, something can always go wrong. I mean, that's at the end of the day, that stuff happens all, it can always, you know, we, again, it's about risk and it's about sort of managing in that way. So when you lean in and you find those, those processes that actually add friction to the business and don't provide the value, the cyber value that we intended to be, and you remove it, you actually gain a lot of credibility with the business when, you, when you're the one driving that. Um, so that's, that's some good advice that I would give folks. And as well, then when the time comes, when you need to spend that political capital to add in a friction point, because you know, it could go, it is serious, it, is, it, it could go off the rails, You've established that trust, you know, already uh, at Bear. You you already have sort of the the right tone, you know, with the with your leaders and and other other peers, so that they know you're actually doing it for the right intentions. I mean that that's human nature at the end of the day. Like we we work in trust models, and we have to be able to establish that. Eric, you just blew my mind. I, I love the the way you phrased that, adding in a friction point. And if we think of it that way, then we're very careful about doing it, right? Mm -hmm. If we say anything we ask our users to do, or clinicians or anybody, anything we mm -hmm. ask them to do that they're not doing now is a friction point. Is it worth it, mm -hmm. right? And then taking it out. Um, very interesting. Anything come to mind when you talk about uh, processes or friction points that could come out? Does any examples come to mind there? Well, I... I... I'm hesitant to give examples inside my own organization for obvious reasons. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, but uh, you know, I think I'm trying to figure out how to. Maybe Julian, I don't know if you've got a, an example. Julian, there. yeah, I can. I can <laughs> rescue. I, I can jump in. I think. Uh, look, I'm, I'll, I'll even give a simple example of the uh, of the availability of single sign-on. Right. So let's say. Um, you uh, you as a user could have 2750 however many passwords right so uh, there's there's no way why you can't make that uh, into a less friction way to do business um, save everybody's time not have to remember passwords and actually make it more secure for those that have seen uh, clinical personnel with uh, uh, with something around their neck uh, and uh, written passwords, <laughs> that, that's not secure, right? Uh, so so it, it's, it, it helps serves both purposes, if you I think the other thing is anytime you introduce a change, and that's maybe something that for me, I've, I've not always been in healthcare providers. I've been in insurance technology industries before. And one thing that I noticed is that um, first time I came to the provider side is that I, I was thinking that everybody is a knowledge worker sitting at a computer. And that's not true um, because the majority here are clinicians and their job is to take care of uh, the patient. Um, so, so again, the, the appetite to do uh, some of those processes, uh, it's different for a person that's used to uh, kind of walk through their email, that's their nine to five primarily. 
versus somebody who needs to be in the real world taking uh, care of the patient. So keeping that in mind, um, I think it's, uh, it's crucial. How do you introduce change and make it as simple as you can for somebody whose main job is not working the computer? And I think it's just to add to that, like going to the point of friction, like I'll give you a simple example. Like I know there are some organizations where I have friends where they have said, when there is an incident, they need to fill out documentation, which is like two or three pages. Then they need to file it online. They need to go submit it to a department. And then they also need to enter it online, scan it and submit it. And then they are, and so that's a big friction point. I know why the organization does it. It's to create a very strong documentation trail. But the net effect of it is there is no documentation because nobody wants to do it. And so I think as CISOs and organizations, you've got to think carefully about what is the balance between having a good process versus making it so hard to use that nobody is going to do it. So you pretty much get nothing. So I, I think I, I agree, like Eric and Julian's point. Got to understand the friction points and constantly away between what's going to work in an easy fashion versus just the friction is too high for it to just not happen. I, I got another example for you. So now that I had a chance to thank <laughs> you, owe, you owe Julian. Go ahead. I do. Thank you, Julian. <laughs> so, you know, when you, when you think about approvals of access into systems, who needs to sign off on that? You know, that coming down to the, you know, the, the real, the real side of, of those sign-offs, are you, do you have three, four, five different approvals you know, going through the process because you just want to make sure every possible scenario could, has been accounted for. And that's, and you have yet a volume of hundreds or thousands of requests that are going through that. I mean, think of, think of the, the operational impact that causes versus who's actually the one that needs to say, you know, they're approved in, you know, users manager is usually the first one that, that is the, is in the case. There might be a secondary approval because of sensitivity of certain data you know, where so-and-so is a data owner and they, they want to have sign-off authority rights on anybody that gets into a specific area of an environment. Okay, that's fine. Um, you know, but make sure that it's all being done in a rational, reasonable way. And you're not just throwing more and more folks in the midst of the approval chain just to cover literally any edge case that could possibly happen. Right, right. Um, Eric, you met, you know, we... So Shankar talked about the idea of keeping it simple, uh, which, you know, we were just discussing. You mentioned the the uh, the fish button um, if someone gets an email. And so I'm going through this scenario in my head of, OK, I get an email and it's it's questionable to me. So the, the fish button sends it off somewhere. It, it goes yep. somewhere for review. So I'm sitting there. My concern would be I want to make sure that this gets vetted and sent back to me pretty quickly, especially if it's approved, because mm -hmm. if it's approved, that means this is legitimate business email. If it mm -hmm. goes off into some void and mm -hmm. I, I don't get it back for a week and then I get it back and it says, this is fine after a week, that may not work. So we have to make yeah. sure as we put these things in that, that those things don't happen. So your thoughts there? Yeah. I mean, th this comes back down to understanding my opinion, understanding what your service catalog is and, and service offerings inside that service catalog. And especially any, any point where you're engaging with a customer and the customer could be an internal customer of an employee, could be a patient, you know, or an external customer member or whomever, there should be expected norms uh, and delivery on, on how quickly uh, you're going to respond, you know, and then those norms should be communicated out to the organization so that it's clear what the expectation is. And then, then you manage by expectation instead of managing by everybody's individual preference. 
Um, you know, I think that's also just a, a key to being seen again as I, I think everybody understands resource constraint. There's always resource constraints. Even if you had literally everybody you'd ever asked for, you're going to have a resource constraint, you know, so it's, it's, you have to manage, you know, or by, by SLA, you know, in, in, in my opinion. And so what's the turnaround time to, you know, respond to that fish alert button and what's that response going to be? How do you, you know, write a procedure around that so that the the person on the other end understands exactly what's supposed to happen in that, in that punch list. And then you're training, you know, those folks in the back end so that if there's churn attrition or whomever, whatever happens inside your organization, it doesn't matter necessarily about the individual that's doing the work as it is about the process and procedure that's, that's being expected there. So um, good organizations would have that response, you know, uh, in a, in a, defined timeline. It might not be immediate because there could be a deluge of all of this, but, you know, hopefully within a period of set period of time that the organization accepts. Yeah. Anthony, I would, uh, I would add to that. Um, you can actually have uh, the opposite effect if you put in place something like a, a fish button in this case, and you don't you know, provide a response to the user um, for days on end, they don't know what happened. Um, you could have one of the two responses. One, the person um, will stop submitting that and you're going to lose uh, that human element that is invaluable. And then um, the second thing that could happen is they will start sending emails to everyone they know, really impacting uh, everyone's productivity. Uh, So again, not an optimal outcome as well. So really have to think through um, and have that customer mindset. Um, and maybe I'll add one last thing on this topic. Um, it's really about, because we're talking about culture, driving that, um, if you will, customer service mindset, um, not just in IT, but in cybersecurity as well. We're all in service in, uh, of others. And then uh, when you're working in a shared services, sometimes that connection Um, is not that clear. So as leaders, you have to constantly reiterate that to to your staff um, and uh, uh, put mechanism in place to to train that up. Very good. Uh, Eric, uh, I'm not familiar with the term service catalog. Can you tell me more about what exactly a service catalog is? Yeah, it's actually uh, born from, I'm going to use some acronyms now, fortunately, uh, ITIL which is, yeah. you know, like the IT standard processes and services. And so, you know, you know, adopting that into a cyber context is, you know, think about what the totality of what your cyber program is, you know, and I mean totality, one to N, you know, N being the denominator of everything that you do. And in the numerator side of that, some of what you do is going to be customer facing, and from a cyber perspective. So the fish simulations, the awareness and education, your access controls and, and measures, uh, any governance work that, that is in place, third-party risk assessments, contract reviews, you know, all of those things are, you're engaging with the business in some way. Some stuff is in the back end, you know, your, your SOC, your security operations center that's constantly looking at logs and looking for threats and, you know, events and incidents and and taking action and response, you know, your architecture, your, um, again, even on the identity and access management side, there could be backend, back office, you know, uh, engineering and architecture things that you're doing there to, to better enable 
the foundation of your access suite. Uh, so, but in, in all cases, you know, everything I just enumerated could be a service offering in the context of a larger service catalog. So, and, and then cybersecurity is just one piece of, of the whole IT service catalog. So you call the help desk and you ask for a laptop, you want storage, you want uh, to bring a new system on, you need a new server. These are all examples of services and service offerings. So the whole idea on this is if you can categorize everything into large buckets, you know, so identity and access management is like one bucket of, of work, you know, around getting identities in place and access, you know, in place. You could have services underneath that that define um, core things that the business understands. You know, Shankar mentioned single sign-on, uh, or maybe Julian mentioned single sign-on as an example. Two-factor authentication, um, identity management, and lifecycle management. The mover joiner uh, lever, uh, sorry, joiner mover lever. I got that backwards. <laughs> um, uh, you know, all of those things, and then one level below that is the uh, is that discrete offering. So, so the idea on this is at the, the service offering level is that discrete unit that you're really going to engage on the customer with, or, or maybe it's an engagement that you're going to have with other members of IT and you need like a review done in a certain period of time. Ultimately, you scope what that thing is. So an example would be an access request. You know, what's what's the expected uh, deliverable on an access request? Is it manually provisioned or automated, like an automated birthright? If it's automated, it'll be delivered in 24 hours. And, you know, in this system with these particular rights and roles, and then when the access request is submitted into the system, it flows through and it's expected to be delivered within that 24-hour timeframe. That's an example. Maybe it's a manual provision where it takes you five days to do that. You know, and so for the manual side of that service offering, you would define it as a five-day turnaround for these particular systems. The important part is, is to actually scope and define it so that people understand the context of what the work that's being done. And then again, you're setting expectations. I said it's going to take five days to deliver, you know, manual, uh, a manual provision. If that's unacceptable, now, now we can have the other conversation, which is resources, time, and money. You know, I mean, that's really the only thing that can change in, in all of this. Or maybe we can automate some of this, but that might, you know, take a, an investment in capital to get some of that work done. And there's a return on investment for doing so. And so you can, you can have that conversation. If you don't measure those things and you don't scope those things in that way, it's very difficult to explain what you do uh, from a cyber perspective, which is one of the biggest challenges that we have. <clears throat> Shankar, any thoughts there? Well, I think um, Eric covered it. I think just going back to this entire fundamental question, right? Um, I think what you have to do in every organization will change from one organization to the other, right? Um, like Eric mentioned a few things that I think is important for what he's doing, what Julian is doing. Based on my experience across organizations, like every organization has a different problem potentially and where they need to improve their cybersecurity culture. So, you know, the ones who have a healthy culture, what I've seen is they encourage lively discussions to understand where the root cause of the problems lies. People bring out their problems, they express it, and then they can effectively address whether it's from the single sign or a two-factor authentication. Uh, and the, the other thing is organizations which have an ability, which have a strong culture, have an ability to measure uh, implement and also have a measurement cycle on how well things are working on each cycle, uh, on each level. Like, you know, how well is the process working? How well is the feedback loop working? 
Uh, how well is the response time working? Like going back to the fishing button, how well is the response time working? Like in which sections is the response time working well, not working well? And they're continuously tweaking, whereas the ones who are, don't have that effectively have a process, they have set different levels, and then they are not able to adapt because I think things continue to evolve in the industry. New people come in, organizational processes change, uh, people with different understandings come in. And so what you would do today might change a year later as a different technology comes in, as a different set of people come in, might change six months down the line if a different CFO comes in or if a different CIO comes in. So things are continuously evolving. And I think the one thing I would add is the ability to measure and have those discussions with the organization is key. And then as you have those measurements and have those discussions, you continue to adapt and evolve. Even for processes that were working well, they might need an evolution over time. And I think that evolution is a continuous journey in the organization. So culture is not that you do it well and you keep it that way. You do it well and you evolve it as the organization evolves and as the landscape evolves. And I think that's the key point as well. Great points. Julian, any thoughts? No, I don't have anything to add, um, um, Anthony. I think we've, uh, I think Eric and Shankar covered the topic. All right. Very good. We're going to jump to our, uh, my favorite section, which I want to get in here, our ask a co-panelist section. I'm going to give uh, the panelists an opportunity to ask each other a question. Eric, I'd like to start with you. You have a question for either or both of your co-panelists. Sure. Julian, I'm going to, I'm going to go for you, my friend. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you've, uh, you've just recently started at, at UPenn Med. Um, so how, what is, what is your sort of way of engaging with the, the new leadership and, um, and sort of, and establishing that trust? Like what, what's your first hundred days, 180 days look like? Yeah, I think, uh, I think it starts with, uh, with building a, uh, one-to-one relationship uh, that that cannot be understated. So I spent uh, a lot of my uh, um, first months uh, ensuring that I've met with all the key um, leaders across business lines, um, folks uh, that are leaders on the compliance side and all the typical uh, stakeholders. Having that strong relationship, uh, it's key whether um, you need to react to an incident, whether you need uh, the support later on, um, and then um, really being a foundation to understand the specifics of, uh, of the organization, if you will. Um, and then from there, really, uh, once you understand what they care about, you understand more about the culture, uh, ensuring that when you bring back the strategic plans and roadmaps, um, you constantly go back and refer to what you've heard. I think that's a key element of uh, uh, showing that you listen and that you incorporated those needs and their thoughts into uh, your go forward plan. And that really makes uh, um, getting the support that um, any leader needs in cybersecurity um, uh, really key. Shankar, do you have any thoughts on, on uh, changing a culture? You know, Julian, uh, new to an organization, fairly new, uh, coming in to, to an organization, a health system, any thoughts on how to improve a culture that may not be as good as you'd like it to be or bring your changes to it? Yeah, I think it does depend on what's not good. And I think it goes back to, so for example, I've seen some organizations where, you know, there's no awareness 
where most people don't even know what the problem is. So I think if you if you're in that kind of organization where there is no awareness, but you have an executive buy-in, then obviously you focus on awareness training, and there are ways to actually bring that awareness training. There are some organizations where I've seen that the awareness is there, but there is no policies and procedures to actually make sure that you know the entire thing is flowing. If you have that kind of problem, you would try and probably find a similar size organization, look at their best practices, try and incorporate some of that, pull in some of those policies and procedures. There are some organizations where all of those is there, but there is a, a shame culture, for example, and there is a culture where it's very hard like, to get your voice out. Um, and that's something that is fundamental. So you probably work with your HR organization to probably spread awareness and create it create easier. Maybe the gamification that Eric talks spoke about, remove the shame culture. So I think when people talk about improving a culture, the culture has so many different elements to it that I think you've got to first decide what is the problem. If you didn't have executive buy-in at the very top, then that is the first problem you've got to say because you are trying to fight the entire organization all by yourself. So whether it's an executive problem, whether it's an awareness problem, or whether it is like a communication problem, or whether it's a policies and procedures problem, what is the problem? And then depending on each one of them, you have a different set of resources you do uh, whether it's external or internal, or whether your own colleagues in the organization, it could be the chief HR officer, the CIO, the CFO. So I would say what you do in an organization depends on what the problem is, and each one of them has a different way to improve. Uh, and so you've got to take it piece by piece and prioritize it and address it is, is my thinking there. All right, very good. Shankar, do you have a question for one or both of your co-panelists? Actually, I have questions for both Eric and Julian. So, you know, I've been in cybersecurity long enough. And I, what I, one of the things I've seen, especially in healthcare as well, is a lot more CISOs, in my experience, are being invited to board-level discussions now as compared to, say, five years ago. That's what I've seen. Uh, like uh, five years ago or seven years ago, when I used to talk to healthcare CISOs and directors, they would say, I've been told to do this. Now, I think they have a chance to press and to influence the direction. So my question is, one, in your both your two parts of the question, both your experiences, do you see that evolution in your roles in your organizations, your work across different organizations, where you're being invited at the you know the executive level to present and influence? Because CISO is not just uh, IT; it's I feel it's a business function. Do you mm -hmm. see that happening? And two, going forward in the next five years, do you project happening of that happening more, or is this just like a hype we are in, where this goes down and people suddenly start seeing the CISO again as a yeah. an IT function? What do you see? Well, I'll, I'll take the first stab. Um, so the, the answer is yes and yes <laughs> for, for that. And, and I think the reason why is, is a couple of fold. You know, so first of all, you know, understanding what the board is, is there to do uh, is actually important. I think every CISO should, should have that you know, critical understanding of, of the role of boards versus the role of management. You know, at the end of the day, depending on if you're public, not public, that also some of that uh, the fiduciary responsibility there changes. Um, you know, but at the end of the day, I mean, the board is there to to represent the stakeholders and make sure that the management is is operating in, in along the lines of the expected norms that should be there. And cyber. The, the threats in cyber have changed over the last five years. Uh, the the I rather I should say the impacts uh, as we continue to move more digitally, uh, there is just more and more catastrophic failures that can occur if we're not doing this job correctly. And and those failures cascade into disruption of the business and disruption of 
um, in, in the healthcare space, it's, it's patient safety, you know, potentially as, as that of things that are at risk. And so boards manage risk, boards manage, you know, manage management. Um, and their job is to make sure that they've, we've got the right pathways in place, the right people in place, and that the oversight is, is there. And they're not there to run the business. They're not there to, you know, um, to make the decisions on operational choices. That's management's job to do that. So, you know, in the, first of all, understanding that is important because when you're invited to speak and talk to the board, the context of what you're discussing needs to be in those, in that lens, you know, of, of why you're there. Um, you know, and as we continue to be, we continue to push digital. And and again, we're talking healthcare right now uh, that we're talking directly patient safety and, and care uh, for our, for our people and our patients. And so the up uptime and operation of our, our clinical processes, our workflows, uh, you know, the volumes that we, that we run through our technology uh, are not volumes that can be run on paper. And so as we continue to be at that level and we continue to operate at that clip, the resiliency of those systems is actually more and more important. Um, so what you're seeing is more awareness and more understanding of the patient impact in addition to the data impact, the privacy and confidentiality impact, which is what our 10 years ago conversation was about. 10 years ago was data, privacy, don't lose the data, we'll have HIPAA breaches, regulatory breaches, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, now the game is different. The game is our business won't operate if this stuff isn't up and running. Our patients won't be cared for if this isn't up and running. So yeah, the boards are concerned about that for all, all the right reasons. And management is concerned about that because they understand risk and they understand why that is the, is the case. This is why I, I, I say the CISO, you know, the CISO as well has got to grow up from being that data focused, that data mindset, that, that IT, you know, junkie um, geek in the back corner. And I'm a geek. So like I, I say this, you know, as, as a geek, um, you know, like it, it's no longer that job. You know, our job is resiliency to the business. It's the resilient, it's the ability for the business to continue to operate in a digital capacity uh, and and making sure that there's confidence in that ability to do it. And when things go awry, because they will go awry, there are always going to be problems that we have we have solid responsive actions in order to deal with it in a quick way. Um, if, if our world had no crime, we wouldn't have jobs. You know, we wouldn't need to have jobs uh, because everything would be perfect and, and that would be the case. But that's not the world we lived in. You know, ever since society has come together, there's always been crime. There's always been malfeasance. And we are just now in that land of cyber, you know, of cyber malfeasance. And so that's our job is to be stewards and protectors of that. Julian? Yeah, I'll add to that. Uh, ultimately, in my view, um, the core two things from a board perspective is to uh, um, to ensure that the organization is viable long term, right? So that means things such as uh, focused on strategy and mission. And then a big part, of course, is the risk. So as long as cybersecurity um, is an existential risk and with a potential impact to patients and uh, uh, significant, significant impact to operations, um, it's going to be a, a topic of, uh, of choice. I think the other thing is 
cybersecurity, it's a really new field. Now we uh, think about, well, it's been 20 years, 25 years. Well, think about how many hundreds of years uh, or, or more there's been finance and other um, other organizations that have been that got a chance to fine tune to a mode where well now every organization has its functions and it's kind of um, kind of more standardized. So I think until we get there, um, it's going to be a constant change and a constant uh, need for interaction and visibility. Very good, Thank Julian. You, you have you have a question for one or both of your co-panelists? Yeah, I have a question for both as well. Um, both Eric, Shankar, both of you um, engage with uh, different um, uh, different organizations um, and observe different cultures, um, either from a, a more vendor perspective or through uh, uh, your previous careers. Um, I'm interested, especially um, as most or many cybersecurity uh, professionals at all levels um, change jobs across industries, um, what are some of your observations that are, uh, I think folks should be aware of? Um, those sometimes subtle differences in culture, um, even between the same type of organization, be it healthcare providers, um, there's sometimes large variations and it's, it's good for folks to uh, uh, have a keen eye on that. Any Shankar, thoughts? you want to jump in first? That's a great question, right? I, and I think it's, it's a very important one. Uh, I think uh, when I have seen in my experience, and I used to work at Semantic before, so I've interacted with hundreds of organizations across industries, including healthcare. And when I've seen people change jobs, one, one thing, they def the first thing they look for or when they notice for is how does the rest of their peers think about them? Do they think of them first as a peer? or somebody who's more like an IT worker. So for example, some one of the teachers said, I went to this interview and I spoke to, I don't know, he spoke to the CTO or something. And he said, we are the executive team. You are here to execute and make sure we are doing any, he, he said, this is not an organization I'm gonna go. I am a, like, you have to treat me as a peer. And you know, that's the thing. The other kind of organization thing that people generally watch out for is, is there a general buy-in and how much discussions have, have been there between the previous because generally there would have been somebody managing that function. I mean, very rare for nobody to be in cybersecurity in an organization, zero resources. So how has that organization worked? How have they worked previously? How many discussions have they had? Um, you know, how you know how engaged was the executive level? And some of it could be the person, some of it could be the culture of the organization. Uh, so how much was the executive buy-in already into that? That makes the life easier. The third thing is what kind of expectations are there? from that organization. So sometimes you want going into an organization to be realistic when people change jobs. I've heard like people tell me, I, they have, I, I didn't take the job because they expect everything to be done and my budget was X. <laughs> they said in that budget, I probably got one thing done and they expect everything to be done in six months and they assigned my, allocated my bonus associated to it and I said, there is no way this is being set up for failure. Mm -hmm. So I think you got to also understand what kind of expectations and alignment and make sure you are aligned and this like, cannot happen after you join. You don't develop a 30, 60 day plan after you join, set the expectation. If you're going in as a senior level, you do it before and make sure it's all aligned and that you have a general idea of expectations, even if not to the nitty gritty. You at least know what is you're getting into and what the expectation and outlook is in six months. You don't want a shock or a surprise. So I think these are some things I've observed. And there are a few others, but I like Eric comment as well. Yeah, maybe what I'll say to this is, 
uh, as a CISO, so first of all, I mean, the, the job is in hot demand, you know, and so there's, there's a, there's a huge need for, for CISOs. There's a huge need for mentoring and bringing up new CISOs, you know, that around talent that we see. And so hopefully, um, everyone around us is, is looking and, and, and finding that talent and mentoring and coaching and, and culturing it, uh, just because we, we, we need it, you know, we need it as an industry and, and thinking about it that way. Um, the, you know, when, when I'm, when I interview, so I, I changed uh, a year ago, I was at university of Chicago and now I'm at, at Intermountain. I was with university of Chicago for seven years, which is ancient history, a long, long time in CISO, in, <laughs> in CISO years mm-hmm. as a, a senior old timer at that point. Um, you know, there's, there's certain things that, you know, I think you need to walk in when you're interviewing for these jobs, like what are the behaviors of an organization that are important to you? You know, what are those back to what, what Shankar was just talking about? Um, you know, what are the things that you want to make sure that that you feel you're going to have success in to be able to deliver and 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 drive? Um, you know, I again, personally speaking, uh, I, I do a lot of give back in at the industry level. I do a lot of work with the federal government, uh, with the 405B program and so forth. So the support of that is is really crucial You know, for me personally. And so having organizations that not only uh, see that as an asset, uh, as a boon, but like want to double down on it because they see just how important it is, you know, for the even outside of their own organization, you know, those are personal, personal things. Um, so when, when you can line that up and you should be looking for that as, as they're interviewing you and you're interviewing, you know, the, the organization, you should be looking for like what those behaviors are, what those norms are, who makes decisions, how are decisions made, you know, does that fit your, your model, you know, your, your accepted practice. Some of us are totally fine with, you know, huge collaboration, you know, consensus building decision-making. Some of us are not, you know, and so like, if you're going to walk into an organization that is consensus driven uh, and you need to get 80 out of 90 people agreeing, um, (laughs) and then you're, you're not that way, you're not going to, it's going to be hard. Let's just put it that way. Not that you're not going to be successful. It's going to be hard. Um, and so you just, you got to line up those, those behaviors well, you know, to be successful. All right. Uh, we've, I'm going to give everyone 30 seconds for a lightning round of final thoughts. Uh, we're almost out of time and I would like you to think about a CISO at an organization that does that. Maybe they'd give, they'd grade their cybersecurity culture a C. Okay. So picture you're talking to someone who's grading their culture a C and obviously wants to improve it. What's your best takeaway piece of advice for them? Julian? Uh, if I'm to say one thing, I just say communicate at all level, uh, all levels to influence behavior. Think about what people care and think about what's the best channel uh, to reach them through. And uh, everything else will uh, follow from there. Very good. Uh, I'm sorry, Eric. Put yourself in their shoes and, and ask the question, would you want to engage with you? Ah. Um, you know, so are you, are you leading? Are you at the table? Are you solving problems or are you creating friction? Right. Are you creating needless friction points? Very good mm-hmm. point. Uh, Shankar, uh, last word today, we'll go to you. Yeah. So I would say the thing I'd say is cybersecurity is not, culture is not one thing. It's a series of things that needs to happen. So 
figure out all the things that are required and prioritize and then start taking action on the what you see is the most critical whether it's communication or executive to buy in and don't try to buy the entire elephant at one go excellent excellent talk today uh gentlemen um Regarding continuing education, you could use the final slide in this deck. You'll get an email when the on-demand recording of this event is ready for viewing. If you want to sponsor an event with us, you can reach out to Nancy Wilcox from our team and go to our website to register for upcoming panels. With that, I want to thank our panel very much, Eric Decker, Julian Mihai, and Shankar Somasundaram. And I want to thank our sponsor, Assimile, very much for making this possible and you for attending. And HHSD for uh, uh, HHS 405D for supporting and partnering on this event. Uh, with that, uh, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you.